this morning comes from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Oh, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus is probably, probably not new um, for most of you. It includes one of the most famous metaphors in all of literature. Born again. Why is it important? What's the result of it? What does it mean for us? And how do you get it? That's what John is trying to explain to us in this famous passage about Nicodemus. Look with me at verse 3. You see where I get the outline. Verse 3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, the importance of it, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What happens to us when we get it? And then Nicodemus said again, how? How can a man be born again? That's the outline. Why is it important? What's the result of it? And what does it mean for us? And how do we get it? So first, what's the importance of being born again? Jesus says in verse 7, you must be born again. He's saying that this is not an option. You must be born again. What does he mean? It's crucial. Jesus says, unless, 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 you must. Now, as you talk about the a passage that talks about being born again, like we're all going to wonder, okay, let's define what we mean because we know that the term has been misinterpreted and redefined, and I'm going to get there, I promise. But let's just walk through the passage together and see how John unfolds it for us. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. All right, stop. We can't go further until we understand something about the Pharisees. And I, 
I know I've shared this with you before, but let me just give you the Cliff Notes version again. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were those brothers and sisters, those brothers who came back from exile into Judea. And you read about that in the latter half of the Old Testament. And when Israel came back into the land in the latter half of the New Testament, in the latter part after the exile, loyalty, devotion, faithfulness to God was on a precipitous decline. And there were earnest people in Israel saying, we've got to bring back God's law. And so they began to meet together. And they began to study God's law together. And they called themselves the Hasidim, the godly ones. And you can read about the spirit of the Hasidim when you read about an anonymous godly one in Psalm 119, where he says that God's word is sweeter to my lips than honey. And these Hasidim, in between the time of Malachi and Matthew, linked up with a group of people called the Hasmoneans. They were the descendants of Judas Maccabees. They were the ones who fought for independence from the Romans for a very short period of time between Malachi and Matthew. And they linked arms together with them and they formed kind of a, a, a fraternity to say, let's be serious about God's word. Let's bring it back to our people. Not a bad thing to want to do, amen? It's a wonderful thing to want to be holy. No doubt about it. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from the word Parashim in Hebrew, which means to be separate. These Hasidim and the Hasmoneans, they became separated from others because of their holy way of life. They took God's sovereignty seriously. They wanted to obey his law. So far, so good. It's wonderful. What a great thing to want to do. But... The wheels came off as they began to pile up slews of advice on how to keep the Old Testament Torah. They put themselves on the seat of Moses. The seat of Moses in the, is you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. They put themselves on the seat of Moses and said, we are going to define how you're going to obey these Old Testament lights. And eventually, this oral tradition that was passed amongst the Pharisees became codified in one section of what the Jews use today called the Mishnah. And one section of that describes the Pharisaical traditions and laws that are kept in order to obey the Old Testament. And they would say that Moses, in fact, as they taught their children and their children taught their children, Moses brought down not the Ten Commandments, but Moses brought down all these commandments that we have devised on how you grow holy. You see the slippery slope? Feel the wheels coming off? And then they said, well, David, our great hero, our great hero king, he confirmed what happened with Moses. And so we have Moses' testimony and we have David's. Mm. Something bright became dark. Something light became a burden for God's people. And so that by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, the Pharisees had laws for everything. You, you, on the Sabbath, for example, you couldn't make your bed that would be smoothing. You couldn't pluck a gray hair that would be reaping and so on. And in that culture, in this culture in which we read this text, the Pharisees are not the bad guys. Far from it. They're actually the morally good guys of civil society. And yet, 
Jesus has nothing but antipathy toward them. Jesus is friends with the tax collectors and the sinners, but he goes right at the Pharisees. Because in Jesus' eyes, the Pharisees actually posed a greater threat to the gospel than the prostitutes. It was the religious conservatives of the day that, was, that created a kind of industrial complex of laws and rules and subcultures which blinded people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. And so Jesus befriends sinners and he goes right at the Pharisees. Shakes our categories up a little bit, doesn't it, church? And one of the principles that you learn right off the bat is that the only thing that we need as God's people is need. And need was the very thing the Pharisees couldn't bring. They didn't need it. They had the laws. And the principle is that the gospel of Jesus Christ must continually humble you, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or for 50 years. Christians, even in your effort to rest on Christ's merit, if you do not pay attention to that, even that good motive, though it may have been, will morph quickly into a works righteousness if you don't watch it. It's like a beautiful rose garden. You always have to trim the rose bushes in February. The Pharisees were the traditionalists, the moral values camp, and they were all about purity and holiness. And in pursuing that purity and holiness, they created an entire subculture, this industrial complex of desires and power grabs and longings whereby they were trying to earn God's affection. And Jesus goes right at them. Now, let's keep moving down the text. We know that a group of Pharisees, we don't know who, have been talking about Jesus. Because notice what Nicodemus says. He says, Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We. Now, quite frankly, before I stated this text, this text if you were to ask me about the story of Nicodemus, I would have told you that Nicodemus came to Jesus, and I would have thought in the back of my mind that he individually came to Jesus because he was curious but if you read the text more closely, you see that Nicodemus is representing a group of people. He's an ambassador. And it says he comes at night. The Pharisees and the scribes would often study scriptures late at night. It was one of the ways that they showed that they were holy. And so here, a group of scribes or a group of Pharisees are studying scripture. And perhaps then they said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're the leader of our group. Why don't you go to Jesus why don't you go to Jesus and find out how he's doing all of this stuff? Because it's, it's obvious he's from God because he's performing miracles. And let's get him on our side and get him on our team. And I love how John, you know, um, writes this story. He says that, um, you know, Jesus gives the example of wind. And so it's not just any night. It's a dark and stormy night, perhaps. The wind howls. So you've got the teacher of the law coming to Jesus on a dark and stormy night when nobody's going to see him come. And John uses the term night throughout his gospel, not only to refer to the time of day, but also to veiled reference to the spiritual state of the person that's walking in the night. 
So here's Nicodemus, this person dark at heart, walking through the night, in a howling storm of the night to come find Jesus. And it was a veiled move by Nicodemus to want to work together with Jesus to say, Jesus, we are the ones who teach the law around here. And we thank you for your efforts. But we want to learn from you, Rabbi. And we want you to become part of us. In other words, they wanted to have Jesus to come alongside them and to reaffirm their way of life and say, Jesus, would you come on? Would you be our consultant, Rabbi? Would you come and teach us, Rabbi? Would you help us have the power that we really want? And so we're going to use you in order for us to accomplish the mission that we have set out to accomplish. A holy people set apart. And Jesus sees right through it. The next verse, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say unto you, and whenever Jesus says truly, truly, look out. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was customary when you, when you greeted somebody, if you flattered them, then it was assumed that you would receive a flattering comment back. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't play those games. Teacher, teacher, it's obvious that you've come from God. And it seems like Jesus is changing the subject. It's like a, it feels like he's like, it's like a non sequitur. We're going into something different. But Jesus pierces through the normal social norms. And he says, I tell you the truth, teacher. I tell you the truth. Truly, truly. Heads up. Listen to this. You may think you're in the kingdom. You may have been born to a mommy who was in the kingdom or a daddy who was in the kingdom. You may have lived all your life in the kingdom but you're not in the kingdom unless you've been born again. The Pharisees wanted to sit at tables one, two, and three, not table 23. The Pharisees were the ones who took the best seats at the synagogue. In fact, Eugene Peterson says, their whole way of life looked like a perpetual fashion show where religion was their clothing, where the world was their audience, and God was like a stagehand and their supporting actor. Now, how do we know if we're falling into this trap? Now, you know better than I do. You know your own heart. And for those of us who are religious insiders, like the Pharisees, there's a lot of secret stuff going on inside of our hearts. And you can have two people whose behavior is absolutely identical, but they could not be further apart in the eyes of God because he looks at what's in the heart. And I fall into Pharisee-ness, if that's a word, let's make it one, Pharisee-ness, when, whenever um, I'm around other pastors and we're talking about our churches and I go out of my way to compliment you. Doesn't that sound holy? Oh, my people are so great. But you know why I talk about you? Because I want them to think about me and how great I am. Or, um, or last week was a good example. Like last week, I got up early. It was, you know, the weather was crummy. It was icy and snowy outside. And I was, I was coming. I said, man, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just all stay home and play in the snow? I want to do that. How come all the people get to do that? But I have to go to work. And they better show up because I've worked on this sermon all week. 
And, and how, come, how come everybody else's kids gets to worship together with their dads? But my children have never known church without a father who's at work. Mm. You hear the self-pity? That's my Pharisee-ness coming out. Me, I want to matter. And I don't know what it is for you, but um, you know your own heart. And do you know these tendencies in you? And others may notice it before you notice it in yourself. It's very easy, for example, for us to notice pride in each other. We, we have noses to smell it because we ourselves are prideful people. And you, you, you recognize it when people exalt themselves. You see it. Do you do that? Do you have friends that love you enough to be able to come to you and say, hey, bro, I love you, but you're giving off an air that reminds me of the Pharisees? That's big time love. And we exalt ourselves in two ways. Either we exalt ourselves over God instead of loving God, or we exalt ourselves over people instead of loving people. And it can look so spiritual and so good. At Community Group, Brad Rutman shared with me an example of, of one of his favorite movies in Legends of the Fall, where um, in Legends of the Fall, Alfred, one of the brothers, says to Tristan, played by Brad Pitt, if you've seen the movie, at the very end of the show, he goes, he looks at his younger brother, he says, I followed all the rules man's and God's and you follow none of them and they all loved you more. You hear it? You feel it? It's our Phariseeness coming out. Don't tip it down. Bring it out. Let it come out. Confess it. Phariseeness says to the woman in the midst of a crisis pregnancy, here's the law. Now get out. But the gospel says, here's the truth, but welcome. The Pharisee says to the, uh, to the man who is not committed to any church, but is like doing it himself spirituality, DIY spirituality, he'll say, here's the fourth commandment. Now I'll be waiting for you at the door with a clipboard to check to make sure you're, you're here. But the gospel says, here's the truth of what God wants for his people. It's beautiful to be together. Here's the truth. And now let's struggle with it together. The Pharisee says to the, the couple that's struggling in their marriage, be faithful to each other. Now go away. And when you have your act together, you can come back into our presence. But the gospel says, here's the truth of what God expects of marriages. Now enter with us into the struggle of how to lead godly marriages together. Do you hear the difference? One says, here's the law, now get out. The other says, here's the truth, now come in. One has conviction and exclusion. One has conviction and compassion. You don't forsake the truth. Nobody's saying, give up the truth. No, you want it, but you want to couple the truth always with compassion. Jesus was with the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners all the time being misunderstood by the religious crowd. Now, Nicodemus obviously shows us the dark side of religion. That's the point. You see it, right? This is, the, this is the rich young ruler kind of stuff, friends. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And how can I get a kickback from you? And it's important for us at Trinity to get this because those outside the church see the hypocrisy of Christians radiate 
like an isotope from them because Christians are often not able to be secure enough in their identity in Christ to admit that, of course, they're hypocrites, fallen and broken. The only perfect person in our church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So we struggle together as a people. And your Phariseeness comes out when you refuse to open up to people over time as they get to know you. And I, I know it's scary, and I know it's hard to open up to people, but would you pray that the Lord would bring you friendships, even in this church, who begin to know the real you, with whom you can be honest about you and not always feel like, as Eugene Peterson said, every event you come to at Trinity is like a fashion show. You know what I'm talking about because you know your heart. Now, what does it mean? What's the result of being born again? The result is found in verse 3. You will see the kingdom. It's possible to be part of the kingdom culturally. It's, part, it's, it's possible to, be, to, to think that you're in the kingdom, but you never see it. And Jesus says you can see it, and it will blow your world open. Born again in our day, of course, has become a political term that pundits use to describe the average evangelical voter. That's what most people think of when they hear the term born again. And a recent poll by the American Culture and Faith Institute finds that many self-attesting born-again Christians in the U.S. hold beliefs that are at odds with Orthodox Christianity. For example, less than half self-professing born-again believers believe that the Bible contains and con uh, convey, uh, does not contain and convey absolute moral truth. Let me say that again. Less than half believe the Bible contains and conveys absolute moral truth. 75% believe that people are sinners, but they're basically good. And the implication is that they can then earn their way into God's favor. 63% believe that some can earn their own way to heaven. Only 30% of born-again Christians have a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, glory, and understand that they're saved by grace alone through the instrument of faith, not by works. The meaning of the term born again has been completely lost to us. But what does Jesus mean? He means, O oh Nicodemus, O oh self-attesting Christians, that you're not in the kingdom because you're born into the right family, but because you've been made spiritually alive by the Spirit. And Jesus, he explains this when he says, he quotes from Ezekiel 36 and, and 37. I truly, truly say to you, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is, what is this idea about water and the Spirit? There's four interpretations that most commentators hold. Either it was John's baptism of water and, and a, a real, re, um, how do I say a Christian word without sounding like a Christian? Regenerate heart, right? What does that mean? It means a renewed heart, baptism, a renewed heart. Others think it means a Christian baptism and then a spiritual rebirth. Still others think that it means, um, it means uh, 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 something uh, different altogether as though that there's two baptisms of, of some sort. But what most commentators believe, what I think, is that in quoting Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, Jesus is saying that you can't be born again unless your heart is made new. That's what Ezekiel is talking about when he shares the story of how I'll give you a new heart, chapter 36. And then to illustrate it, he says, there was a man who came upon a valley of dry bones. 
And God said to Ezekiel, speak the gospel to these dry bones and they shall live and sinews grew on the bones and flesh. And the bones came alive. That's what it means to be born again. Bones made new. What was dead now comes alive. Old hearts become new. If I wanted to plant peaches in my backyard and all that I had were apple trees and I went to those apple trees and I fertilized them, what would I get? Bigger apples. Well, let's say that I, I prune those apple trees. I would just get more. What needs to happen is that somebody needs to tear out those apple trees and plant peach trees. That's the only way you're going to get peaches. And the gospel says that it is not by your behavioral change that you're saved. It's by a completely new root. Radix. Radical. Something totally new for you. And it's given to you. The solution to our sin problem is not just a change of our behavior, but it's a change at the root. You, can give, you can't give yourself a new heart either, can you? The wind blows where it wants to. The slowest, most brutal death you can experience is the long, slow death of religion. It is the medicine that makes you sicker. It promises spiritual victory, but it leaves you bitter, empty, full of self-pity, and mad. And you don't even see it coming. Martin Luther was one of the primary um, um, uh, stimuli in the Reformation. Nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg. And Luther says in his commentary on Galatians, I myself have been preaching and cultivating the gospel of grace through the reading and writing of spiritual things for almost 20 years. And I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to contribute something so that he will give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Do you hear it? It's like a garden that you plant, your rose bushes that you might have. If you just leave them, the wheels are going to come off. Pharisees were not bad people in their motivation to begin with. Somewhere along the way, they became dominated by works righteousness. Are you? Now, how do you get it? If you want Jesus to be your teacher, as Nicodemus did, Rabbi, we know that you're from God, then you'll never change. You'll just get more apples. You'll never get peaches. But if Jesus is your Savior, then there's nothing that you hold back from him. I know you struggle with what God's word says, but trust him. I know that you're struggling with your identity, but he's given his to you. You're his. Lean into that. That's primary. All in, all the word, all your life, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Do you believe that? Or do you say that, Jesus, I want you because I want you to be a consultant for me? I'm going to call you rabbi, but I'm not going to call you Lord. And some of you are waiting to have some radical spiritual experience, aren't you? I don't remember the day I was born, but I'm pretty sure I was. And many of you have amazing stories, testimonies of how Jesus opened your heart, right? 
I mean, it's like you take your birth certificate and you put it on your wall. It's an amazing story. It's wonderful. Some of us have lost our birth certificates. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we know it did. And regardless of if you had this amazing testimony or you don't know, you know that you're born again. How do you know that? Because you need Jesus. Do you need him? Now, um, Jesus, after he talks about Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 5, he goes down later and in verse 14, he gives another allusion to the Old Testament when Israel was in the wilderness and Scott read it for us earlier. When they were disgruntled about the food they were eating and, and God sent snakes and the snakes bit them and their veins filled with poison and they were dying and God it's frankly kind of a weird story, isn't it? God said, I want you to take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And when they look at that serpent, having been bitten by the snakes, they will be healed. And here Jesus is saying, it's not by your works. It's because the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And just like Israel in the Old Testament, just like Israel, oh, sitters on the seats of Moses, looked to the bronze serpent, so also Christians today in the wilderness of life continue to look to the one who was lifted up high to heal the world. And Jesus, of course, is talking about himself. Jesus is the one through whom we have life. And not only do we have life through Jesus, not only do we have a new birth because of our faith in him, but even more amazing to that in our experience that we're loved. It's one thing to be born. It's another thing to be born into a loving family. Oh, if there ever was a grace of God given to us outside of salvation, it's being born into a Christian home. And here God says, not only am I taking you orphan and bringing you into my family, but I'm showering you with my love. J.I. Packer writes that to be right with God, the judge is a great thing your justification. But to be loved and cared by God the Father is the greatest thing, your adoption and your experience of your Father's affection. A PCA friend of mine um, who's now retired uh, once said that when um, he wrote this, he said, when I became a Christian, two things happened to me. I got saved and I got loved. I got loved so deeply that it still amazes me when I think about it because I got loved so deeply. I want to please the one who loved me that much. I may not always please him. Sometimes I even run in the other direction because his love can really hurt. I may chafe against pleasing him. I may not even speak to him. But I'll tell you something. I want to please him, and when I don't please him, it hurts. And now I really want to please him. And in order to do that, I must know what pleases him. And I find that by reading his word and listening to his commandments, when I know what he wants, I want what he wants. Love does that to you. But I must know what he wants. And this is why we must never soften the teaching of the law of God. Holiness is very important as long as it's given in the context of God's love. Does that ring true for you? We find our friend Nicodemus two other times in the book of John. In John 7, 50, the Pharisees, after Jesus' arrest, and we always wonder what happened to Nicodemus after this, right? Jesus just like rips into him and then he disappears from the scene. And then 
four chapters later, the Pharisees are meeting, or, or 14 chapters later, they're meeting, they're talking about the trial of Jesus. What are we going to do with Jesus? And who stands up amidst the council of the Sanhedrin? But Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, does our law judge a man without first hearing and learning from him? Listen to that. Shouldn't we listen to him? Because, brothers, on one dark and stormy night, I heard him. And I saw the kingdom. And it changed my life. And after Jesus dies, who is it that takes his body down and buries it, prepares it for burial? Joseph of Arimathea, and who else? Nicodemus. The richest guy in town and the seminary professor who had stopped looking at Jesus to be his teacher and started to care for him as his savior. And for these two men to deal with a body after death was to do women's work in the ancient Near East. Only women took the bodies and prepared them for burial. But here, two men take it because they have been so, their lives have been, their hearts have been broken open for their need for grace. And John says, Nicodemus, in John 19, 39, Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. Whew, talk about CrossFit. And so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. Though they'd been unclean, according to the law of the Pharisees' regulations, they know that they've never been cleaner in their life. He stopped being their moral teacher and he started becoming their savior. And all they brought to him was their need. Can you do that, Christian? Whether you're not a believer yet, or you've been a believer for many years, all you need is need. That's it. And that's the hardest thing to bring to the cross. Doing the work of love for their Savior, Nicodemus and Joseph accomplished the work of the, of the law. Um, uh, they, they did the work of love for one who accomplished the work of the law for them. They were born again by the work of their Savior through his death, through his blood shed, who made our new births possible. I've seen four births. Actually, three, because I was getting a pillow for one of them, and I missed one, so that's another story. But I've seen three births. And they're beautiful and they're bloody. And so Jesus' death on the cross was him giving birth to you. Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, how often I would have gathered you as my children together as a mother gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were unwilling. See, see the kingdom. See, your house has left desolate. For I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I say to you, you will not see me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to trust you and to bring you our need?
for I pray that you would help us to fight against all the Phariseeness that so easily comes up in our hearts and help us to say to you, Lord Jesus, please teach us. Please teach us. But teach us because you're our Savior. Thank you that you gave your life for us to transform us, to make us into something beautiful for the world. Thank you, Father, that there's hope for us in men like Nicodemus who listened and helped those here who are still pondering this message to listen, to think harder, to reflect on it, and open their heart to treasure your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.